All right, how you guys doing today? That was lukewarm at best. How are you guys doing today? That's what I want to hear for the recording. That's perfect. That is perfect. So anytime I ask you a question, that's the response that I want because it sounds great on tape. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us um, and coming to see what the Lord has for you. Uh, I'm excited to be teaching through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you're new here or you haven't been coming for very long, we are going chapter by chapter through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we're doing it like that is in part because there's so much confusion. It's probably one of the books in the Bible that has the most controversy, the most confusion. And it's not even just the casual reader that's confused because who know, if you read the revelation of Jesus Christ casually, you're going to come away going, I have no idea what they just said, right? You have, it's one where you really have to pay attention to it and let the Spirit speak to you about what's going on. But even more than that, the more you study it, the more confusing sometimes it gets. This is one of the books where every single, and I like to read commentaries and things like that as, as part of my uh, message prep when I'm writing, This is one of the books where every single, literally every single verse in there that you would look at, and you would look at a commentary, there's three, four, or sometimes a dozen different scholars, learned, well-studied scholars, who have absolutely polar opposite opinions on what's happening right there. It happens all throughout this book, and so that's my heart, is to try and make the meaning clear. As a pastor, as a teacher, I feel like my job is to just take the Scripture and make it as clear as I possibly can because there's very little that I can add to what's in here that's going to help you in any way, right? I like to think that I have some wisdom, um, and I'd be happy to share that with you as, as uh, time permits, but most importantly, it's the Word of God. And I want to share that, and I want to make that come to life. So many people see the revelation of Jesus Christ as a scary book. It's scary. It's about pain and suffering and judgment and wrath. And there are elements to that. I spoke to a woman just a few days ago who told me, I love your church. I love your teaching. I love the people. I love everything about what you do, but I won't be coming again until you're finished teaching through Revelation. And I said, why is that? And she goes, because it scares me. The thought of it. The way she was raised, the way she was taught, and some of the things that she was led to believe or or told about this. And you can pull out individual scriptures, and yeah, there's judgment and there is wrath. But it shouldn't be scary. It should be a book of hope. It should be a book that, that shows us that in the end, no matter what we're going through now, the trials, the tribulations that we're going through right now are all a part of God's bigger picture. And he has a plan, and he has always had a plan. And none of this is a surprise, and he's trying to react and figure out to how great, like, I had no idea Donald Trump was going to do that. What do we do now? Okay, it's not anything like that. This, more than any other book in the entire Bible, to me, proves that our God loves us, and he had a plan from day one. And there is literally nothing that any human being could do to mess up God's plan. 
Now, that being said, our individual personal experiences as we go through life and as we experience what God has for us, especially when it comes to the times that are described here in Revelation, our experience is based largely on our interaction, where our heart is, how we choose to participate today is going to have a lot to do with our experience through this. So I said last week, I used the, the illustration, and I liked it, that says that the things described in this book, the judgment, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, the apocalypse, all these things that are coming, they are roaring at us like a freight train. There's, they are. They're coming. You can't stop it. You can't stop it by not reading it. You can't stop it by not thinking about it. It's coming. But we should take comfort by knowing that we're not just innocent by it. We're not just going to stand there and let it smack us. We have a role to play in this. And the role that we play in our understanding of how this all rolls together will largely determine what your experience is. Okay, And a lot of that comes from our perspective. And going through this word, it's the only... It's the only book in its entirety in the Bible that specifically says in chapter 1, verse 3, it says those who read and those who, bless, who uh, hear will be blessed. So simply by reading or hearing this, you'll be blessed. But it also says you have to heed the words, which means take it to heart. It's not just hearing it. You can't just put book on tape and listen through and go, okay, I'm blessed. You have to hear it. You have to take it to heart. Taking it to heart means letting it change you in some way. Your perspective on end times, your perspective on the day-to-day, if you really take it to heart, it should in some way change you. But we have to be open to letting that happen. So we're going to get into chapter 7. Before we get into chapter 7, and I do want to go back and I'll kind of recap 6 a little bit, but one of the things that we talked about, and we start using the term tribulation quite a bit, Tribulation. What's tribulation? So we talked about that. We also threw out the term, or I did, um, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. And I used it in the context of, of who has ever had an argument about is it pre-mid or post? Okay, and vast number of people in here like, yeah, I've either argued or I've heard people arguing about that. So The danger, though, is to take that and just go, okay, everybody knows what we're talking about when we say that. Some of you may be going, and and rightly so, what is pre, mid, or post? What are we even talking about? What is tribulations? I want to clear that up because I do not want there to be any misunderstanding when we go forward. First of all, let's just look at the term tribulation. Tribulation means, uh, for the most part, trouble. Okay, like you would all think, there's not really a secret meaning, but really accurately it translates to pressure. Pressure. Now, bless you. There are a couple kinds of pressure. Specifically, the term tribulation, as it's translated all throughout the word, is used as internal pressure or external pressure. Right? It's all pressure. Internal or external? External pressure is those things like when we're told in Scripture, in this world you will have trouble. Okay, and that trouble is pressure being applied to you. It's persecution. It's, it's famine. It's different things that are done to you from the outside. 
Mostly, you would have very little say or opportunity to change that. It's being done to you. That's one kind of pressure. That's one kind of tribulation. Typically, when the Apostle Paul is writing through his letters, when he says there's going to be trouble, there's going to be pure persecution, things like that, it's that external. It's things will be done to you in the name of Jesus. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Now, we shift to the other kind of tribulation. The other kind of tribulation is internal pressure. Internal pressure. Internal pressure, that version of the word tribulation is the one that's most commonly used as we go through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what that is, I'll paraphrase what that is. That's the realization that when these things start to happen, when the prophecy that we're given here, when it starts to come to pass and we see the earth shaking and we see the stars falling and we see people being raptured and we see some not being raptured that internal pressure is going to be the realization that I knew better and I could have done more. I knew better. I knew this was coming. I was taught it. I knew it, and I chose to ignore it. And now I have friends, I have loved ones who don't know Jesus. And could I have done more to help them come to that? That's going to be that internal, that internal grief, that anguish, It's not going to be something anybody puts on you. It's going to be internal knowledge. I could have prepared better for this. And that's where that grief is going to come from. Now let's talk about, when we talk about pre, mid, and post, specifically, we're talking about the rapture, right? We're talking about the rapture. So that leads us to the next question, what's the rapture? Okay, everybody, I would imagine most of us, even if you're not a believer, you kind of have a, an idea of what rapture is. Rapture is the idea of, of you're suddenly taken away to heaven, right? Okay, question for you, though. Is the word itself, rapture, used in the Bible? No, I hear mostly no's. Any yeses? Okay. We're going to talk about that. The concept of rapture certainly is. The concept of it is is very clear in the Bible. So I'm going to read you just a few scriptures. I'm going to read you three of my favorites that really illustrate the idea, the concept of rapture. First one, and I'm just reading this to you, Matthew 24, 30 to 31. says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Next one, Daniel. This is Old Testament. This is basically Daniel is the Old Testament equivalent to the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the Old Testament apocalyptic literature. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." Then down in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 34 to 36, says, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. 
There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Okay. That is the idea of the rapture. That is the idea of being taken to heaven. Now, to go back, it was a trick question. Is the word rapture found in the Bible? No, the word itself is not, but here's where we get it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. This one we have on screen. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, describing the rapture. This is the perfect illustration of how vanilla the English language is. How unhelpful it is when it comes to describing certain things. Okay, we use the phrase, will be caught up. That phrase, will be caught up, obviously translated from what it was written. It was written in Greek originally, right? That word, will be caught up, or that phrase, is one single Greek word. And that one single Greek word is harpazo. Harpazo means this in Greek, to suddenly and decisively snatch up a prize. That's really good. Hopefully the silence is indicative of you going, that's awesome. Jesus will come back. We are the prize. Jesus will suddenly and decisively come back and snatch up his prize. You are his prize. That's awesome to me. So when you think of the word rapture, we get that because that word harpazo, when you translate that into Latin, is the word raptus. That's where the word rapture comes from. So the word rapture, no, it's not found in in original scripture, but the translation of that phrase. So if you have a Latin Bible, it'll say harpazo. So if any of you answered yes, you must have a Latin Bible, and you are so smart. So when we talk about the rapture, here is my favorite scripture that's really probably the most concise description of what's happening in the rapture is this one. I'm just going to read it to you because it's a little bit on the long side. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again, verses 13 through 17. It's a bigger chunk. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. I love that. That's my favorite single scripture that, that describes what's happening there. It's so full of, of just hope and excitement. But when you read that, that raises yet another question. As I said, this this. Scripture is so full of questions and people just hardcore on one side or the other. But I want to ask you a question. Here's a common question that I get. Are our dead friends and relatives in heaven now looking down at us? Are they there already? Yeses, noes. I'm getting just a little more. Nobody wants to answer really out loud because they're like, 
We know we're going to find out the answer here in a second. Problem is, you're not going to find out the answer. I'm going to give you the two schools of thought. There's two different, well, actually there's more than that, but two main really well-studied, well-backed-up-in-scripture well-documented schools of thought that go both directions. One of them, one school of thought, is the dead stay in the ground. When you die, you stay in the ground until that time of rapture. Very well-documented. Many, many scholars firmly believe that and teach that. If you read that 1 Thessalonians 4 scripture that I just read to you, and you look at it, it seems to indicate that those dead in Christ will stay in the ground. Until that time when he comes back and then we'll all go together. It seems to imply that, right? Another, ver- uh, another scripture, John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says this. This will be familiar to a lot of you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I would go to prepare a place, uh, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, makes it sound like when you die, you go in the ground, you stay there, you're just going to simmer and you're just going to wait until Jesus comes back for you. Very well documented and a very easily defensible position if that's what you believe. Or there's the other side. The other side says, at some point after death, you go. Now, I say at some point because that's the only way to avoid fights and arguments, even of people that believe this is what happens, because at some point could be the moment you die, just like in the cartoons, you see the spirit rising up out of it the minute somebody passes away. We see people who have had these death experiences in the hospital, and they say, I felt, I went, and I saw it. And then I came back into my body. We see things like that all the time. So at some point after you die, you go. Revelation, if you read chapters 4 and 5, they describe the scene in heaven. If you remember describing that scene in the throne room, they're talking about multitudes being there. They're talking about elders being there. Not just angels, but elders of the church, and the elders in the church clothed in white robes, indicating, right, that they are the ones who had been here on earth, and they had died, and now they were in heaven worshiping. Now, we can talk about timelines, and again, that's all these things that people debate. But then you go back to Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, when Jesus is being crucified at Calvary, and he's on the cross, and he turns to the one next to him, being crucified with him. And they said, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. That would tell me that without Jesus himself is saying, hey, we're going to be there today. Then now you have scholars that argue, well, today is figurative. doesn't mean today, today. Okay, and there's, there's validity to all of these different versions. Here's what I believe. I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong. I'm going to tell you what I believe through my study and what the Lord has spoken to me. I believe this. goes all the way back to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 7 says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. 
Okay, an example kind of of that is as we go through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John being in the Spirit in heaven witnessing these scenes. He's not given a prophetic vision in most cases. It says, I was taken in the Spirit to that place. So he is, he is in the Spirit. His Spirit is literally there witnessing these things. So here's what I believe. In other words, to kind of encapsulate what I believe, the spirits of the dead in Christ are now in heaven and present with the Lord. If you died knowing Christ, your spirit is in heaven with the Lord. When you die, that's what happens. But their physical bodies are not raised and reunited. There's, there's body, there's soul, and there's spirit. Okay, the body and the soul stay in the ground, and they're not reunited until that day in heaven when we're given our new glorified bodies. Okay, that's how that happens. So, yes, you talk about, is my grandma in heaven looking down, smiling at me? I believe she is. But it's her spirit. On this day, we will get to see the actual bodies rise. This is what we're talking about here. So, but with all those, and there's a thousand more questions, right? But I wanted to get that out because a lot of people ask that question. Why is the Bible itself not more clear on the timelines? You look at the rest of it, there are parts of the Bible that are super cut and dried, okay? You look at, um, you look at the first five chapters of the Bible, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Do this, breathe like this, build your house like this, build the temple like this. It is all very, do this like this. There's not a whole lot of gray area or wiggle room, right? Then you go into, like, say, Proverbs. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. Proverbs is very much like that. Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount is like, here's how this works. Here's what you should do. Do this, don't do that. If you do this, it's like that. He's very, very clear. And then we get to what should be probably the most important book in the Bible, you would think, right? It's the, it's the conclusion. It's the big climax of the Bible. And yet now all of a sudden there's all kinds of gray area and like debate back and forth. There's much of it that there is no way until we get there and we're seeing it unfold with our eyes that it's going to be clear. There's no way. Why is that? I think that's important because of, a, of, a, of an idea called progressive revelation. Okay, this, Remember, this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't just say it's a book about apocalyptic end of the world. It's a book about Jesus, and these things are happening. Okay, so it's first and foremost about the revelation of Jesus, and it's done progressively. We go back to Scripture. John, in his gospel, okay, so John wrote this revelation later, but when he wrote his gospel, chapter 16, verse 12, he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Okay, actually, that was Jesus speaking those words to him, and John recorded it in his gospel. I have many more things to say, but you can't bear them now. Go back to Daniel in the Old Testament apocalyptic literature, remember, he was given very much this very same vision, but he said, he was told, hide it. I want you to put it down, hide it. And the reason for that is not because he doesn't want anybody to know, it's because when the time comes and your motivation is right and your heart is right and you are desperate to seek for truth, it will be there for you to find. I believe that the, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is very much the same way. There are a lot of things that are constantly debated. They are debated for two reasons, or they're left that way, ambiguous in some cases. 
Number one, to get us to focus on what's really important. Is it really important if the trumpet sounded before the bowl judgment and how these different things happen or in exactly what order does this happen? Is that the most important or is the most important thing to know Jesus? To know Jesus, to have relationship with him because he and he alone has the keys to death and Hades. And he alone is going to be your guide when this time comes. And a solid relationship, having him say, I know you. You're one of mine. That's going to be what helps you as you go through this. So we're all going to experience these things. Your experience, your personal experience through it is going to be dependent on your knowledge and who Jesus is, your relationship with Jesus. So it's that unfolding, that kind of progressive revelation um, that we're looking through. That's why I think it's, it's somewhat difficult to find. We need to be in a mindset to be seeking that truth. Okay, so there's a lot of what we teach and what we hear that is just going to kind of fall on unfertile soil at this moment. But when the time comes and you need that and you want and you seek that knowledge, it's going to come alive to you. So let's get to chapter 7. I've wasted three, oh, wasted. I've taken, I've taken three-fourths of my time. I've wasted time talking to you about rapture and tribulation and all these. What a waste of time. Let's get, to, let's get to chapter 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So last week, chapter 6 ended with God unleashing his fury. Remember, the mountains were moving, stars were falling, wind was blowing. It was, it was chaos. It was so bad, people were cowering and just saying, I would rather the rocks just crush me right now than have to deal with any more of this. And we're left with the very final thing, the final verse in chapter 6, says, who is able to withstand the great day of God's wrath? That's the end of chapter 6. Chapter 7 now, remember we were left, we went through the, um, the seal judgments 1 through 6. We still have 7 to do. This is kind of an, an intermission period, right? So what we see is we start out with God calming everything for a moment so he can take care of some housekeeping some business before we go on to the last one. So I'm going to read this to you. Just listen. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This is out of the New American Standard is the one I like to teach out of. Your version may read a little bit differently. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. And from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 
12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For in the Lamb of the, in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That is awesome. Now remember, when you look at this, this is a continuation of the sixth seal judgment. I talked about during the sixth seal, that seal is opened, and then we have earthquakes, and we have all this this craziness going on, right? Mountains literally shifting in where they are. So it's a continuation of that. Earth is shaking. The sun has been darkened. The moon is blood red. Stars are falling. Winds are howling. Then... God pauses for a moment to make sure that his people are sealed because what's about to happen, we want to make sure that there's no confusion. So Revelation chapter 7, verse 3 says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So he's telling, literally telling the angels this, stop, let's stop all this, let's make sure that everybody is sealed. Now, you read this and you go, what does that seal say? I want to know what the seal says. It's not like the scripture where Jesus bends down and writes in the sand. You're like, I, nobody ever knows what that actually said. It tells us later, actually, we have to go up to chapter 17 to see what it says, but Revelation 14, 14 that is, 14.1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So this is what's being written. It's quite literally the name of Jesus and Father God written on their foreheads. So that's what we have. Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I look at that, and it sounds 144,000. It's a pretty exact number. And that number is repeated several times throughout Scripture. But... That itself is another basis of argument. You'll see scholars arguing on back and forth. Well, the 144,000 is is not literal. It's figurative. 
12 is a number of, of perfection of God. You have the 12 patriarchs. You have 12 apostles. You have 12 tribes. And what this really means is 12 times 12 times 12 times 12. It just means an infinite number. There are people who argue that and can support it by Scripture, very much so. Um, I tend to believe that it is an actual 144 just because of the number of times. It's never referred to just as a great many. It's the 144,000. Now, what's also important, as you may know, if you're, if you're kind of a theologian yourself or, or you're a student of Bible history, that there are 12 tribes. But you may have also caught that as I read through the 12 tribes, there's one at least specifically conspicuously missing. Anybody know which one that is? Tribe of Dan. Dan is missing. Dan has actually been replaced with Manasseh. Manasseh was considered one of the lost tribes of Israel. Why was Dan excluded suddenly? If you think about what is Dan, what is the tribe of Dan, you go back to Old Testament Scripture, what are they famous or infamous for? Being rebellious. Being rebellious, being idolaters. And most important, unrepentant idolaters unrepentant. They refuse to give up their ways. Why is this important? It's important to know that just because God chose you from the beginning, you have a role to play in this. The Jewish people were God's chosen people, and the tribe of Dan was a part of that. But when they were rebellious, and they refused to repent, and they continued in their ways, God said, okay, I'm going to replace you with someone else. God has the sovereign right to change his plan based on our response. That's why it's so important that our response is correct. So this is where we are. This has just happened. And we need to go forward looking at who these 144,000 are. Now we talked about the tribes that are missing, but who actually are they? Does anybody know who they actually are? These, again, the low, the low tone, I, I think I know. These are redeemed, chosen Jews, believers in Christ, those who have become followers of Jesus Christ. But more importantly, that core, missionary core, if you will, of redeemed Jews who have been instrumental in bringing others to Christ. Okay, so this is a specific number from those tribes who were chosen to have Christ revealed to them who would then become missionaries to go and bring salvation to others. This is who specifically who this 144,000 is. So we see the list and we and we see where they come from and I think that's important. Um What's really important, though, is when we go on and we look at what happens next. Okay, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Okay, this is what we really need to look at here. Who are these people, this great multitude? Some scholars say it's this 144,000. It's the same number. 
Those people who argue that it's 12 times 12 times 12 and it just indicates a lot, they think it's the same number. I don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches us. This great multitude from every nation, that's the key. Every nation. It's not just the Jewish nation, nation of Israel, right? Every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. These are people from all over the place. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. What's key about white robes and palm branches? Those are the redeemed in Christ, but more importantly, they're the victorious. They have persevered. They have made it to the end. Remember in earlier scriptures, it talks about you will be given the the wreath or the white robe or the crown in various ways. It says, of those who persevere, these are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have persevered through the tribulation. They have persevered through it, and they are given the robes and palm branches of their, of their victory. And this is the people that are here now. So this is a great multitude from everywhere who are here now. This is important. Now, you could say, okay, how do we know for sure this is who they are? Thankfully, we have the very next set of verses to help us with that. Revelation 7, 13, 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. I don't think that he didn't know. I think he was trying to find out if John knew. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have come out of the great tribulation. So if you're arguing pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, Does this give you some sort of a clue as to which one it might be? Maybe, maybe not, right? You could still look at that and go, "Eh, I don't know. Here's the important thing, though. Your experience during this time, you can't stop what's happening, but your experience is going to be based on your here and now. This is why it's so important that we know Jesus and our heart's right and we and we answer his call, and we're bold in where he calls us to do. Let's move on. Revelation 7, 15, 16. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. These are people who have been through some stuff. These are people who have experienced the famine that we talked about. These are people who have experienced scorching sun. They have had no shelter from any of this. It has hit them hard, and they have persevered. Did they live through it? No, no. Many, many of them were actually killed during this time, died during this time, but they received the crown because they persevered to the end. There was never a time when they renounced their faith. We'll see later where where many of them are killed because they wouldn't receive the sign wouldn't receive the mark of the beast. We see that. All kinds of reasons why they're dying, but they persevered through the end. And now they can rest. They have persevered. They have been victorious. And now they can rest in the shadow of mighty God. The very final promise in this chapter 7 is very, very straightforward. Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Amen, church. This is the reward for those who persevere. This is what we have to look forward to, not wrath and earthquakes and judgment. We have, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is our final promise. So with all this controversy about how this works, how this goes down, what's the timeline, what's the time frame, it's, it's so debatable and it's so murky what the truth is, I believe that this all points us back to our Savior in Jesus. And it makes, it just underscores how important it is because he alone holds the keys to death in Hades. He alone holds the keys to all of, universe, of the universe. If you are a believer in him, you belong to him and him alone. He alone is the Alpha and the Omega. He alone is the Messiah, our deliverer, our healer. He's our redeemer. He's the light of the world. And if you wonder who that person really, really is, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and there is no other name by which we can be saved. Amen is right, church. When we look at all the confusion and the stuff going on, it should create a desperation in your heart to press into him and to his truth. And the only reason that in this time that you're going to be left out in the cold, the only reason is because you know better and you choose to not follow him. You know better and you choose to live your life like it doesn't matter. He offers you every single thing that you need to survive and make it through times like this and ultimately rest in the shadow of the God Most High. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more fear. There will be no more tears. There will be no more of that. But we do have to go through those things here on earth to get to that place. Will you persevere? In your flesh and in your own experience, you can take that scripture down, by the way. In your own flesh, you will never be able to do it. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and thus you have everything that you need to navigate these times ahead. Whether this all comes down tomorrow or next week or next month or 20 years from now, it doesn't matter. What matters is where you are in your relationship with Jesus. Are you solid with your Lord and Savior? And if you're here and you say, well, I don't know him really. I know of him, but I've never taken that time and that step to say he is my Lord and Savior. Now's the time. One of the things that reading through this book does to me is it illustrates how much time, how little time there really is left. Keep saying the time is near, but we don't know when that time is. And the reason we're not given a date, all these people that go through and they do numerology and they try and figure out a date, how many times have we heard that? And then they keep resetting the date as it passes. Because Scripture tells us you're not going to know when that time comes. The reason is, what's our human nature? If they said it's a week from Tuesday when this is all going to happen, what would we do? We'd schedule out um, Wednesday afternoon next week to get right with the Lord. That's just what we would do. 
So, so much of this is left ambiguous because it's about your heart. It's not about, okay, I can figure out, okay, at this date and this time, I need to make sure I'm in the right place. You need to make sure you're in the right place now. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to invite you, now is the time. The Lord makes it very, very easy. Scripture tells us that if you declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's all there is to salvation. Now there's a life to be lived beyond that. But the most important thing is salvation in Jesus. Now it's easy to say the words, it's harder to live. And at the time that those words were penned, saying those words out loud could be a death sentence. So it is not something we do lightly, but it is something Jesus invites you to. Would it surprise you if I told you, if you're, especially if you're not a believer, from the moment that you were born, even before you were born, Father God has been patiently waiting for you to accept his son. He knew you. He knew the choices you were going to make. He knew the things you were going to do. And he said, it's okay. I'll wait. And he has been waiting for you to make that decision. So if you're here and you know Jesus, fantastic. We'll celebrate that through communion together in just a few minutes. But if you don't know Jesus, now is your opportunity. There are so few tomorrows left. There are so few laters, maybe some days, left. The time is now, and I want to invite you to make that decision. So if you are here and you want to make that decision, I want to tell you, I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you do anything. We have a prayer team in the back who would love to pray with you. We have a green book by the, on the table by the back door. It's called the New Christian's Handbook if you just have questions. I remember when I gave my heart to the Lord, I was so, I was like, I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm not going to grab their packet. I'm not going to, I just want to head to the car. And I made a beeline out the door because I was so like overwhelmed with what happened. And maybe that's you and that's fine. But when you need somebody to help you navigate what's happening, and to talk to, we have people here. Could be next week, next time, could be today. Talk to one of us. But if you've made that decision, I'm gonna close in prayer before we go into communion. And if you are in that place where you need to just rededicate your heart or maybe for the first time, you could say this prayer with me. Father God, I repent of spending so much of my life running from you denying that I needed you and trying to live my life in my own strength. Father, I want to give that up and I want to rest in your shadow. I want to be there when you wipe every tear away. And so, Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to us. For me, in all my brokenness, in all my rebellion, Lord, I give that to you now, and I accept the salvation that your son Jesus offers. I have nothing to offer you, but you have everything to offer me. And Father, I accept it gladly. So Father, we just come together and we thank you for the power that you work in our hearts. We thank you for the renewed mind and the renewed life and the blessing of knowing who you are, the blessing of a new or renewed relationship in you. Father, we crave 
all that you are. And we hunger for time with you. We hunger for your heart. Father, reveal yourself to us in a greater way than you ever have before. And give us peace and blessing as we go throughout our days. And it's your son's name we pray in. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion right now. The way that we do it here, if you're new and haven't seen it, at the crosses we have bread and grape juice and gluten-free crackers. And you just dip the juice of the cracker in uh, the cracker, the bread, and the juice. Dip the juice in the juice. Show If you can do that, show me. I want to see how that's done. And you can serve yourself there. Up front, Gabe and I, we have wine and the, and the bread and crackers. Uh, we'd be happy to serve you up here. But let's do this. If you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to be a member of the church or anything. You just have to want to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. And let's take this time now to do that. Amen? Thank you, church. Oh, what a 
Was bought with the precious 